On the evening of February 12, 2007, the Trolley Square Mall located in Salt Lake City, Utah, was busy with shoppers and diners alike. The mall features an eclectic mix of restaurants and stores, including Cabin Fever. A carding gift shop many shoppers were visiting in anticipation for Valentine's Day. It was by all means an average Monday night for the popular mall. Around 6.40 p.m., 18-year-old Suleiman Talovic parked his car in the mall's west parking lot. The Bosnian refugee was familiar with the mall, having been reported to spend much of his free time as a child at the location. This night, however, was not one of his usual visits to the mall. This night would change the course of his life and many of the patrons inside. Join me now as we look deep into the psyche of a young man who witnessed unspeakable horrors as a child and went on to commit the worst mass shooting in Utah State history. This tragedy didn't begin at Trolley Square, or even Salt Lake City for that matter. It began on the other side of the world, in a small hamlet in Eastern Europe. Suleiman Talovic was born on October 6, 1988, to Sulio and Sabira Talovic in Talovici, a town located in the western region of Bosnia and Herzegovina. His name is derived from the Hebrew meaning peace, a name he would unfortunately not live up to. While his childhood home was located in a small farm, his father also worked as a carpenter, sometimes traveling out of the country to work on construction projects. Their life was described as humble but happy, with many of their family members living in the same area. But this pleasant life came to an abrupt end in the spring of 1992, when war broke out between Bosnian citizens and Serb forces. Talavici was one of the first areas to be taken over. Sulio hid separately from his family in the hills, along with other men from the village, leaving them to survive with little food or medicine in the wake of a barrage of explosives and gunfire. Suleiman's cousin Reggio recounted, For a whole year, we were besieged and bombed day and night. At first we all hid from the shells, but later we gave up on life and started coming out. The shelling killed 20 people in the village. Another cousin Ennis recalled, they say about a thousand shells a day fell on Serska and Talavik. Night became day. Day became night. All day we hid in the shelters we made, and at night picking food to eat. 
taking the wounded to Serska and burying the dead. There was no hospital, only a medical technician in Serska. If someone was wounded, there was no hope for them, but some would be taken to him and he would do his best. They used bits of torn sheets for bandages, and he did amputations with a saw. They had no anesthetic. We could not bury the dead by day, because they would shoot at us, so we buried most of them by night, beneath a certain tree perhaps. Sadly, not everyone in the family survived the year of chaos. Sulio and Sabira's infant daughter died before it ended. Suleiman was just four years old at the time. In 1993, Suleiman, then just five, and his mother pregnant, fled their home in hopes of finding safety in Srebrenica. Along with them were Suleiman's three siblings and three other relatives. The journey was not without its hardships. A family friend reported, Many left the village. Only a few made it. Suleiman's aunt described the journey, stating, As we tried to get through the woods to Srebrenica, all around us, people were trapped and being killed. They were killing people along the way. In the forests, in the towns which we passed, one of my neighbors was killed there. Even after arriving in Srebrenica, their safety was not guaranteed. For one, it was sought as a safe haven by many Muslim families, leading the city to be crowded with many people who were starving and frightened and trying to escape the tyranny they left behind. It was also not safe from attack with bombs falling upon the city as they had in Talavik's hometown. During one of these bombings, Suleiman's grandfather was killed. Some believe the young Suleiman witnessed his death. Srebrenica would eventually become the site of the worst massacre Europe has played host to since World War II. By its end, 8,000 men and boys had lost their lives to Serb forces. Suleiman might have met the same fate had his family not left the city in time, seeking refuge elsewhere. The journey to yet another safe haven would prove just as perilous as the one in Srebrenica. Due to Sabira being pregnant, they were granted travel with a convoy to the city of Tuzla. That journey faced a constant threat of being stopped by Serb forces who would torture and kill anyone they caught. Additionally, they faced the threat of starvation, illness, and exhaustion as they traveled. In despite of the dangers their journey threw at them, Suleiman and his family made it to Tuzla, which at that point was controlled by the UN. Ziad Serkik described the family as very poor. They had lost everything, but they were very nice and quiet people. Suleiman seen as a good child, 
always with a smile on his face. The war finally came to an end in 1995. It was then the family was finally reunited with Sulio, who had fought with other Bosnian men and had narrowly avoided massacres such as what had happened in Srebrenica. In the aftermath of the war, Talavici remained in control of the Serbs, meaning that though the fighting was over, the Talaviks would not feel safe returning to their home. Instead, they migrated to Croatia, settling in Zagreb long enough to obtain citizenship. Still, with so much destruction behind them and so little remaining, the family decided to migrate one last time to join relatives in the United States of America. In 1998, they immigrated to the U.S. in hopes of starting a new and more prosperous life. The move to Salt Lake was supposed to represent a new start for the family, the chance to begin again after the atrocities they'd experienced. Bosnian refugees expressed gratitude to the new opportunities of America as it helped them to forget about the war. The Talavics seemed to be sharing in those benefits, indicated Reggio, one of the family's relatives. I spoke to his father on the phone almost every month since they left to the United States and he said for the first time they had a decent life. They have a home, jobs, and they were happy. Unfortunately, Suleiman did not seem to be acclimating very well to his new life. Learning English, a skill so crucial to adapting to life in the U.S., was a struggle for him, and he wasn't making any friends. According to another Bosnian refugee, at school, he tried to be part of American life, but it never worked. The schools here are not like they were in Bosnia. Ala Abra, who works for the International Rescue Committee, describes from personal experience some of the challenges a teenager might face resettling in America. When she was just a toddler, her family fled from Iraq. I grew up here kind of pretty alienated in the school systems, pretty alienated in, you know, the neighborhood. I didn't grow up by any Iraqis, really. You know, we didn't go to the same schools. So oftentimes, you know, I was the only Iraqi student or the only Muslim student in my school. And so it was always really hard growing up in a post 9-11 America. And due to that, you know, I really tried hiding my identity in terms of not really being open about where I was from, not being open about coming from a refugee family, not being open about being Muslim, even though I wore the hijab ever since I was 10 years old, I didn't like speaking about it and like talking about it. I just sort of kept to myself because I had such a lack of confidence of who I was. And it was because I was afraid of how people would judge me. And I think, you know, it's hard being a teenager in general. <laughs> and it's really hard when you are have been displaced from your home, when you've experienced or have seen quite a bit of violence in your life and have seen war and, and seen some horrible tragedies and then you know you come here and and everyone kind of expects you to suddenly you know quote unquote like a normal teenager and just go to school and you're trying to figure out who you are and you can't because you know people have already made their assumptions about you simply because of where you come from or or what you believe in 
The struggle Suleiman was experiencing was noted not just by family, but teachers as well. Changing schools frequently, Suleiman soon became known to them as a loner, though not for a lack of trying. Math and English teacher Virginia Lee saw the struggle the teenage boy endured as he tried to adjust. According to her, he wanted to belong, tried to belong, but often seemed far away when he was in class, preoccupied, haunted. Another teacher, Danny Schwamm, reported, he was quiet and stayed to himself. Whether he went looking for trouble or if found him, Suleiman began having problems in school. His performance seemed to worsen, and he started cutting classes. To make matters worse, he became the victim of bullying at the hands of his classmates, especially since he was Muslim in a post-9-11 world. The bullying came to a head in 2004, when two classmates allegedly threatened him with a knife. Though he was not physically injured, the incident was enough for his parents to take the actions necessary for Suleiman to drop out of school at age 16. The change allowed Suleiman to work full-time, helping to provide for his family, possibly at the insistence of his father. His loner image persisted among his co-workers as he was noted for eating lunch alone and never quite connecting with anyone. According to his aunt, he wanted friends, he tried to make friends, but I don't think he ever had one. Even when he was 18, he was always nervous around people and would shake with anxiety. To add to his social struggles, Suleiman displayed some behaviors that served as red flags for those around him. Some co-workers expressed a darker view of the team, reporting statements he made that could be considered violent or racist. One such comment was, I want to kill whites like the Serbs who killed us. This wasn't the first time concerns had been expressed. Violent incidences seemed to litter his childhood in America. His uncle Nasir recalled he was always causing trouble, but unaware of the damage he did. He once stuffed pieces of broken glass into a snowball and threw it at my son's head. Additionally, he reported that on one occasion, Suleiman had tried to choke his son. Reports indicate that Suleiman ran into legal trouble for his behavior, once at age 10 and again at age 12. Both times, he had threatened a young girl, the first with rocks, the second with a knife though neither were seriously injured. Suleiman was also reported to have threatened the family's landlord with a knife at the time of the first incident. The landlord said, You could tell in his eyes that something was wrong with him. He's unhappy. He's angry or bored. You can tell this child needs help. Rijo believed his nephew was mentally ill, possibly disturbed. Others didn't share those same opinions. His uncle Sadik recalled, he was very good. He never, never hurt anyone. He was a very nice person. Despite these two views of Suleiman, one thing appears certain. No one, family or otherwise, predicted Suleiman would put into action the horrors that occurred at Trolley Square that evening.
The night before, February 11, 2007, Suleiman spoke to another Bosnian refugee, Monica, who had been his girlfriend and the woman he planned to marry. Because Monica lived in Texas, the couple communicated almost solely by phone, and their phone calls would last hours upon hours. During the conversation they had on that particular evening, Monica felt uneasy because of a certain statement he had made to her. Tomorrow is going to be a happy day, he said. Concerned that her boyfriend was referring to an affair he was having with another girl, Monica asked him what he meant by that. He responded, It will be about everyone, except you. You should be happy tomorrow, too. The twelfth was an ordinary day in the beginning. Suleiman went to work at Aramark Uniform Services for his usual shift before returning home to shower and change. He saw his family, though they reported he left without saying a word. Vicky Walker, another resident who lived in the area, also remembers it being a day that started out just like any other. You know, it's kind of like a regular day. We got up, the kids went off to school, Jeff went to work, I was at work. We gathered as a family. My two oldest children were older and had moved out of the house. And we just had the two younger children at home and they returned from school and we were just running around getting ready for Valentine's Day. And that's basically what took AJ and Jeff to Charlie Square that evening was to get last minute Valentine's. And so my youngest daughter and myself had stayed home and the boys had gone off for the evening. At 6.42 p.m., Suleiman arrived at the West Terrace parking lot of Trolley Square Mall. He exited his car and approached the mall. It was there that he encountered Jeffrey Walker, 52, and his son AJ, who was 16 at the time. Without saying a word, the teen drew a shotgun and started to open fire. In an attempt to shield his son, Jeffrey turned and took a step in front of AJ, just as he was struck in the back. Spray from the bullet hit AJ in the head and ankle while his father fell to the ground. Suleiman continued towards the mall entrance, where he encountered Sean Munns, 34. Again, the teen silently raised his gun and shot hitting Munns. As Suleiman entered the mall, he attempted to shoot a security guard at the entrance. The guard was able to dodge and run to safety, avoiding injury. Vanessa Quinn, 29, was not as fortunate. Talavik encountered her as she exited the mall's Bath and Body Works. He shot her just outside the store. Maybe by design or maybe on impulse, Suleiman entered the store Cabin Fever a store known for its cards and novelty items, and open fire. It was here that he found the most victims, Teresa Ellis and her boyfriend, Brad France, ages 29 and 24, Kristen Hickey, 15, her mother, Carolyn Tuft, 44, and Stacy Hansen, 53. Stacy classified as a fighter, trying to confront Talavik and tried to talk him and reason with him. Reports indicate that Carolyn crawled towards her daughter despite her wounds and assure her daughter she was loved. 
Talavik briefly left to reload his gun, only to return and continue to fire upon the group. Barrett Dodds, one of the shop owners in the mall, remembers hearing what sounded like fireworks. When I got to the door, I could smell gunpowder in the air, then heard the shots again, and that's when I looked over. I looked over the edge of the railing and saw him. But after he smelled gunpowder in the air, he knew there was something more terrifying happening. The first 911 call was made at 6.44. We have a kid here that is shot, and there's somebody shooting up here at Sully Square. Okay, are you right there with the kid? I'm right here with the kid. How old is the kid? But police intervention would arrive sooner than the mall patrons, or even Talavec, could have anticipated. Officer Keith Hammond was at the mall that evening, enjoying an early Valentine's Day dinner with his wife in one of the many restaurants in the mall. Despite being off-duty, Hammond carried a firearm with him. Without any hesitation, he left the restaurant and confronted Talavec at 6.48. Soon after Hammond engaged Talavec, Sergeant Andrew Oblett arrived on the scene and proceeded to act as backup for Hammond. Shortly after, SWAT Sergeant Joshua Sharman and Detectives Dustin Marshall and Brett Olson arrived from a separate point of the mall coming up behind Talavik and ordering him to drop his weapons. Rather than surrender, Talavik is reported to have turned to face the officers and shed obscenities at them. At 6.52, a firefight ensued between the young shooter and the officers. The exchange happened in front of a Pottery Barn Kids, Talavik versus five trained officers. While some claim that Talavik made religious exclamations, these reports remain unsupported. One of the officers managed to hit Talavik with a fatal shot. The teen died on the scene. He was 18 years old. Vicki Walker describes how she had to painfully wait eight hours before she was able to hear what happened to her husband. My daughter and I were watching a television show, and there was a news crawl across the bottom of the screen, and it said, a shooting at Trolley Square. And my daughter looked at me with just sheer panic in her face, and I just went, hey, it's going to be okay. So I started calling Jeff's phone, and he didn't pick up. Then I started calling AJ's phone, and AJ didn't pick up. Then I started thinking to myself, there's probably a lot going on. They don't hear their phones ringing. I knew they were safe, as all these thoughts were going through my mind. Our house phone rang, and on the caller ID, it said University of Utah Hospital. And I picked up the phone, and on the other line, you could hear a lot of commotion. And I suspect it was a nurse that called to say there has been a shooting, and that my son had been brought into the hospital, and that I needed to get up to the U Medical Center right away. And so my next question, of course, was, do you know if my husband has been brought in? She just said it was a very chaotic situation and that many people had been taken to different hospitals around the valley. And so as we were going down 6th South, I happened to look to my left and I just saw, I mean, there's no other way to describe it, but it was a scene of mass chaos. Uh, first responders, fire departments, police officers. There were police cars from several different jurisdictions. 
flying past us on their way to get to the scene. Truly, when I looked over and I saw all of that going on, I had a very, 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 very strong feeling it was not going to be good for our family with regard to Jeff. We pulled up to the emergency room. It was just really crazy. And there was just a lot going on, a lot of confusion and commotion and people running around and shouting instructions. And it was an emergency room running at the highest level of professionalism in a really bad situation. And they happened to take us into, I would assume, a conference room. It was a large, large room. A neurosurgeon, uh, gratefully one of the best in the Intermountain West, happened to be on call that night and came in and uh, spoke with myself and my daughter and my friends and said that AJ had been injured and that he needed to get into immediate brain surgery. We found out that he had received shotgun spray and he had been injured on the foot. Some of his ear was missing a little bit on the top part. They told us to prepare ourselves, but they hadn't had a chance to clean him up as much as they had wanted to. When I walked in the room, there was this beautiful young man who was 16 and vibrant, and there he was sitting in a hospital bed. You'd definitely see that he had been injured, and he had a huge smile on his face, and he just said, Mom, you're here. And then the next thing he said to me is, Dad was so smart, Mom, he pretended like he was asleep. And when AJ said those words to me, I, my brain didn't want to let me believe it, but my heart knew that, that, that Jeff was gone at that point. He'd been to Trolley Square about 6.30, and I did not know that he was gone until 3 o'clock the next morning because they were trying to process the crime scene. And in processing the crime scene, they kept information away from us. And I begged my friend, who was a police officer, to, to ask them to let him go and find out if Jeff was gone or not, because that was almost cruel and inhumane punishment to make us go that long without having information. And so finally, after pushing we were able to find out that Jeff, in fact, had lost his life that night. In roughly seven minutes, six people were taken from their loved ones, and four were physically wounded. But those seven minutes would have a far-reaching impact that even Talavik could have ever imagined. In the aftermath of his rampage, countless lives were changed forever leaving lasting wounds even his own family would have to come to recover from. Those taken too soon from their loved ones will always be remembered. Vanessa Quinn, who was meeting her husband Richard Quinn at the mall to look at wedding bands. The two had married four years prior, but Richard hadn't had enough money to get her a wedding band. 
Vanessa was known as kind, fun, and loving. She was a very adventurous woman. She loved animals and had rescued two dogs from a shelter. Brad France was a motivated worker who loved his daughter Deja, friends, and family. His uncle described him as being just a great kid. Brad's older brother, Brandon, said that Brad had tons of friends and enjoyed boating, snowboarding, water skiing, wakeboarding, and riding ATVs. Teresa Ellis was a giving and compassionate person who loved children and was like a mother to her younger sisters. She was one of five girls and had one brother. She loved the outdoors. She was witty and could always come up with a good joke. Kristen Hickey was the youngest of the victims and a sophomore at Brighton High School. Kristen had a great smile and was always there for everyone. Kristen had an infectious smile and she had a natural gift to draw the warmth of others to her. She loved to be a kid, jump in puddles, watch bugs crawl across the pavement, and couldn't wait to go to prom. The first to be killed in this senseless tragedy was Jeff Walker, a man who even in his last moments on this earth used his body as a human shield to protect his son. Vicky describes how she coped after losing the love of her life. So I think you kind of go back and forth between complete denial that you're really walking this road as a person to devastated and falling apart. But then again, you can't completely fall apart. I emphasize over and over again, I really held it together for my kids. Barrett Dodds, considered somewhat of a hero for the brave actions he took to warn people about the attack that was happening, also describes recovering from that traumatic evening. Honestly, there hasn't been a day gone by where I haven't gone through different scenarios that I could, could have done different. I still, I don't, I don't like going to malls. I don't like going to crowded places, movie theaters, or anything like that. On the 4th of July, if I'm not expecting it, it's still startling. In the wake of the shootings, many questions arose. Among them was why this young man, who many considered quiet and a loner, would commit such a heinous act. Suleiman had left no note or manifesto, no indication of what may have been going through his head that day. The FBI sent a team to Salt Lake to try and uncover the answers to that very question. Upon learning that Suleiman was raised Muslim, some began to question if this was a jihad, a smaller level terrorist attack. Investigators quickly ruled this theory out, reporting that there was nothing to indicate the shootings were religiously or politically motivated. Additionally, plenty of Bosnian refugees had settled in the valley to live peaceful lives, committing no violence themselves. Dr. Samuel Mayhew, a consultant for the Department of Homeland Security, included Suleiman in a presentation on active shooters. In this presentation, he indicated that shooters like Suleiman tend to commit their acts out of a need for vengeance. At some point, a psychological injury occurs, and in the minds of these shooters, the shooting serves as a justifiable violence. Trolley Square is reported to be a favorite spot of Suleiman's when he was a child. The family's first home in Salt Lake was not far from the mall, 
It was also at the mall Suleiman reportedly became involved in a fight with another child over a video game. So possibly, that could have been viewed by the teen as a source of conflict he had in Salt Lake City. Or maybe he chose Trolley Square due to happy childhood memories. Some of the investigators wondered if the ultimate goal of the shootings was suicide by cop, in which case, being in a familiar place may have been a comfort. Without any direct evidence from Suleiman himself, all these theories will remain just that, theories. With fresh wounds and without answers, the survivors were left to navigate new and frightening territory. Some were left with permanent injuries to adjust to. Stacy Hansen was left wheelchair-bound due to his injuries. And Carolyn Tuft still suffers from chronic pain from her injuries. A.J. Walker had lost peripheral vision in one eye and has short-term memory issues. Sean Munns still has 75 to 100 pellets in his body and has to take a lead removal pill several times a day. The parents of Vanessa Quinn, Sue and Ken Andrabus, went on to file a lawsuit against the seller of one of the guns used to murder their daughter. Theirs was not the only lawsuit. Carolyn also filed a wrongful death suit against the sportsman's fast cash pawn shop who sold the shotgun to Talavec. Eventually, the case was settled. Suleiman's body was brought back to Bosnia to be buried. His family also returned to Bosnia, where they are reported to live today. Despite the traumas they had endured during the war, the new traumas of Salt Lake proved more than they could bear. Suljo was quoted saying, I'm constantly in the face of sadness and tragedy. I saw my parents who lost children and my son killed. I carry those five people in my soul. Reports suggest that they are near family again and working to heal themselves. Incredibly, in the wake of all the sadness, compassion and love was shown by people in the community. Whether they were close to the tragedy or complete strangers. Memorials were held throughout the state. Many were left at the mall itself. But students at Brighton High School wrote chalk messages outside their school in honor of Kristen. A candlelight vigil was held at the Salt Lake Library, bringing the entire city together to honor and remember those lost. February 12, 2017. Hundreds gathered again in a vigil to honor the 10-year anniversary of the shooting. Carolyn Tuft and Vicki Walker channeled their grief into organizations. Carolyn started the Utah chapter of Moms Demand Action, which is a group that supports gun control. She joined then-President Obama in a campaign for gun control and stood with him at the podium during one of his speeches. Vicki Walker started the organization called Circle the Wagons, an organization that provides crucial support to victims of violent crimes, especially within the first 92 hours. That first night or two, I'm sitting in a waiting room 
My son is in brain surgery. I haven't slept in 24 hours. And I think the hospital trauma support person came in, sat down with me, handed me a file folder, and started to talk to me about some resources. And it was handed to me in a file folder. Well, my husband's just been murdered. My son might not survive. My life has imploded from the inside out. And someone hands me a file folder. Where do you think that file folder ended up? I couldn't absorb the information. I don't remember what happened to it. I'm dealing with saving my son's life. When you are dealing with the, the neurobiology of trauma, your brain is not functioning. You cannot think or absorb information during the, those first 96 hours. I mean, you are functioning at a very primal level, and it's survival. This was kind of what was the impetus behind me forming our nonprofit, Circle the Wagons. And a year after the event, and I had a quiet evening alone, which really hadn't happened much in a year, and I turned on the TV, all of a sudden, they show trolley square towers. There's some water towers in the front of trolley square. And then they started showing the picture of my husband, Jeff Walker, 52 years old, was in banking. And they started talking about my husband. And then they showed a picture of my son. And they talked about my son. And then they started to go through and just rotate the pictures in and out of the victims and talking about them and about Trolley Square. The name of the, the program was The Five Worst Postal Moments in America. And Trolley Square was number four. And I remember just sitting there going, you're telling our story. And they're using my family to, to perpetuate um, their program and, and to be a part of their program. And I want to tell our story. I want to show them that we are not a family of victims. And at that moment, I knew exactly what I needed to do. I knew that I needed to take my experience and my family's experience, and I needed to turn it into something that could help others. And if they were still interested in talking about my family and Trolley Square a year later, I would use their interest in our story to help others. And I turned the TV off, and I immediately started to think about an organization. And I knew that I could not be everything everyone, but I could take my experience and be something for someone. We focused on innocent victims of violent crime. Nine years later, we're expanding our program into helping those families that have had experienced a homicide. And so we're making it a little bit broader in who we want to help and who we can help. And so we took what our experience was and where we could see that there were hits and misses in reaching those that are experiencing trauma through crime or suicide. And we could connect those dots for them and help them move through those first really, really, really difficult hours with some guidance and some resources. I think we've heard often that when you are outside of your own problems and issues and helping others, there is some healing that happens. I knew in order for my family to move forward in a healthy way, 
that we needed to kind of immerse ourselves in something that would take a really awful, horrible situation and make something positive out of it. Trust me, I would give all of this up in an instant to have Jeff back with us, but that's not possible. And so how can we possibly do something that will make his death meaningful and the death of the other people that were there that night and in giving back to the community and trying to help has been so healing and it gives purpose to myself and to my family. Utah's Heart to Home Foundation stepped up and helped Stacy Hansen by completely renovating his home to make it 100% handicap accessible. Perhaps more incredible is the compassion citizens of Salt Lake showed the Talavics themselves. The front porch of their house was covered with cards, flowers, and wishes of healing from people who didn't even know the family. It was clear that the people of Utah empathized with the Talavic family. They, too, had lost someone that meant so much to them. A reporter waiting outside witnessed Sabira collapse, overwhelmed by the love and sympathy complete strangers were showing. Suljo was later quoted saying, It's a really big thing for me. It means a lot to me. That people knew that we were not guilty for what our son did. One act of kindness shown to the family stands out among the rest. The same reporter who witnessed Sabira's reaction to the cards was approached by a woman while he waited for the family to return home. The woman told him she wanted to give the family money to help. The woman was Serbian, a member of the ethnic group that led the Talavics to flee Bosnia and that Suleiman himself allegedly professed to hate. Vicky describes how she has forgiven Suleiman for taking her husband, and rather than feel hate for the boy, she feels sadness. People were saving all the newspapers for me because at some point they knew that I would want them, and I had come home after staying at the hospital for several nights to be with AJ, and one of the papers was setting on my kitchen table, and I looked at it, and it was his funeral. He was only a year and a half older than my son, and they had taken him back to Bosnia to be buried. And there was a picture that the photographer, the local photographer, had taken, and they were carrying his casket on their shoulders. And it was an open casket. And I am looking at his face because they had photographed it. And I just remember I was very unemotional and I'm looking at this boy's. I mean, I kept thinking to myself, he is a boy. You know, this is the face that my husband, the last face my husband saw before he was killed. And I just kept looking at it and going, it's a boy. This boy has done this to our family. And I really was looking at this picture trying to feel some rage or some hate or anything. I really tried to feel that. And all I could feel was just um, no hate, 
just sadness for what would make him do this. And to this day, no one in my family has ever expressed any hate or rage with regard to this individual. Hate or rage would have eaten us from the inside out. And we were trying so hard to survive as a family. And we just didn't have any room to put any emotion in that direction. We may never learn why Suleiman decided to go on a rampage that day, murdering complete strangers as they shopped for their loved ones. But there is one thing we can learn from this tragedy. The owner of Cabin Fever summarized it best when he left free cards outside the doors for people to take for Valentine's Day. With the cards was a sign bearing a simple but poignant message. Don't forget to tell someone you love them today. AJ is an amazing man. I was going to say young man, but he's a man, yeah. Because <laughs> this has been almost 11 years, and, um, and AJ was 16 when it happened. But the reality is, is AJ came out of um, surgery with a, a traumatic brain injury. He was in occupational therapy, physical therapy, psychological therapy, speech therapy. He had to learn how to read and write again. Socially, was doing very well, and he has worked so hard to come back from that. If you were to meet him, he is smart, he's articulate, he's charming. This life experience has made him very wise, compassionate. I think that he has taken the worst thing that has happened to him and not let it break him, and he has become a better person, and he has fought back, and I mean that literally, he has fought back. He's in college, has a job, very happy. And now I want to introduce the writer and researcher of this episode, from the Cleaners team, Megan. My name is Megan. I work in the criminal justice system for the state of Colorado, and in my free time, I work for the cleaners. This was the first script you wrote for us. Tell us a little bit about your methodology and, and how you went about it. I kind of went about it the same way I actually would go about writing papers in high school and college. One of my teachers kind of taught us, like, get all your evidence in one place, and then you can go through it and pick line by line kind of what you want and like group it together by theme. So I choose colors for theme, like, okay, this is aftermath, this is early life, things like that. And I group it together by theme. And then when I was writing it, the biggest thing for me was just, okay, this week is dedicated to this. And I would only focus on the pink sections that week. And then the next week, only the green sections. And eventually that worked out well, but it took some trial and error for a podcast as opposed to a school paper. <laughs> so you would, you would only focus on like this week I'm doing the early part of his life and that would be whatever color that was. Yeah. And that was more so to keep me focused just because there was so much that 
if I was trying to go through and like write it all at once, I would easily get overwhelmed. But you know, it's easy to sit there and focus, okay, just early life tonight. And that went a lot faster for me than when I originally just started writing like, okay, I'll just kind of keep going. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, yeah. And I, I'm very kind of type A. So doing that organization stuff has always really worked well for me. And so I figured using it in a podcast or for writing this episode would help kind of keep me from being overwhelmed because I underestimated how much research I'd end up with in the end. Yeah. I think we all do. <laughs> Certainly. <Yeah. laughs> you can talk about that one with Beck. <laughs> what was oh, I can I can only guess. <laughs> yeah. What was it about Talavik's story that uh, interested you enough to uh, want to write an episode about it? So, I went to college in Salt Lake and I've been to Trolley Square multiple times and um I never knew what had happened there. Like I thought it was just this weird hipster mall um near downtown. Um, and I remembered though, when I was thinking about episodes, the teacher of mine had mentioned the shooting. And so I, I thought, Hey, this could be something. Let me look into this further. And at the point when I started researching, I had come from a job where a large percentage of the kids I worked with were refugee status. So the more I learned about Talavik and all he had been through before coming to the States, the more I saw the kids I worked with in this story as well. And it gave me a new appreciation for what they were, what they had been through. In fact, two of the girls I worked with um, were the da daughters of a Bosnian refugee. So it just, the more I learned about it, aside from the fact that that was the city I lived in for a couple of years, the more it just hit home because I knew these kids that Talavik was at one point. So when you, when you first started listening to podcasts, would you have ever imagined yourself writing an episode for one? No, no, not at all. Um, in part because when I first started listening, like all the podcasts I listened to just seemed so polished and it felt like something people, I mean, I know for a lot of people it's a hobby, but it just seemed like something so above my pay grade. And then when you guys put out the call of, Hey, if you want to help, that was sort of like, really, they're, they're going to trust us with this. They're going to trust me with this. <laughs> and, but I went, so that was kind of a, a surprise because I, it wasn't something I ever pictured myself really doing. Well, I never pictured myself doing a podcast. So. <laughs> so we're all just surprised here. It works yeah. out. <laughs> I'll keep just shocking myself. Well, I, I have to say that was a fantastic script you wrote. And for a first attempt, it was amazing. I really, oh, thank you. I really, really enjoyed the structure of it. Uh, it was easy to read going back into the whole history of the family. Um, when they mm -hmm. were, before they had moved to the U S was, was incredible. Like you dug up so much information and I, I, mm -hmm. I found that myself really fascinating and I'm sure the listeners will as well. Well, thank you. I, I hope they do too, because I know it definitely fascinated me too. I just want to say a special thank you to Ala Abra, Barrett Dodds, and Vicki Walker for taking the time to share their traumatic experiences with us. All three of these individuals are an example of humanity at its best, taking tragic situations and turning them around to bring light into the world.
We've included links in our show notes to the two very important organizations mentioned in this episode. The IRC, the International Rescue Committee, whose mission is to help people whose lives and livelihoods have been shattered by disaster. Their mission is to help them recover and gain control of their futures. And Circle the Wagons, an organization founded by Vicki Walker. Connecting innocent victims of violent crime to essential information and resources that will help them in the immediate hours after the crime, as well in the days and months to follow. And now I would like to introduce to you two podcasts, Military Meditation Coach Join the Military Meditation Coach podcast to try a variety of meditation and relaxation exercises and engage in fitness for your mind. Each exercise is led by an expert in the military health system. The Military Meditation Coach podcast. Made for the military, but good for everyone. And pretend radio. Hey, Minds of Madness fans. I'd like to introduce you to a documentary-style podcast about real people pretending to be someone else. It's called Pretend Radio. It's about con artists, false prophets, and real people who are living a lie, like this man who worked as an FBI undercover agent for 27 years. So what I had to do was a cold approach, which is in undercover cases is the most difficult. So Mahmoud looks at me, but he's still glaring and he barks some orders in Arabic. So I'm thinking to myself, did Mahmoud just tell him, you know, get the Uzis and pull the van up by the back door? And we learn how one man went from being a small-time street thug to running a multi-million dollar medical scam. He goes, you know the doctor went to jail, right? And I was like, the doctor went to jail? I was like, no, I didn't know that. Why would he go to jail? He said, yeah, man. I called my lawyer and I tell him, hey, man, look, I think I got a little problem. He says, what happened? I said, talk to this guy. He said, the doctor went to jail. I'm pretty sure that if the doctor went to jail, they're going to probably be looking for me as well. If you like what you heard, subscribe now to Pretend Radio. And follow us on Twitter, pretend underscore radio. Remember, fake it till you make it. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au Slash G E.